All right, thank you, Jake, and good morning. Wallingford, I hope you're doing well, and I believe West Seattle's tuning in online and perhaps some others out there as well, so welcome to you too. My name is Jeff. I serve as one of our elders up at the Edmonds Expression, but I do always enjoy coming back and being with you in this way as we uh, open our Bibles together and continue this journey through the book of Luke. Luke chapter 11, verses 14 to 26 is where we'll be landing today. It's a challenging passage. It was a challenging one to study and to prepare for this message, but I hope I do do it uh, justice. You'll see what I mean, I think, as we go. Um, but let's get started. I think... Most Christians today would say that there are basically two different ways that a, a person can respond to God in their lives. One way, of course, is by accepting God and by believing in Him. You put your faith in God and you try to live according to what He says, what the Bible says. And of course, the other way that a person can respond to God in their life is by, by rejecting God, by rejecting the Bible and what it says and by doing your own thing and essentially uh, being your own God. Two different ways of responding to God, right? You can either accept him and listen to what he says, or you can reject him and ignore what he says and do instead whatever you say. But I'd like to talk to you this morning about a third way of responding to God. More specifically, I'd like to talk with you about a second way of rejecting God. Because this passage today is going to remind us there's not just one, but two different ways of, of rejecting God. And these two different ways look very different from the outside. They couldn't look any more different, in fact. But these two different ways, nevertheless, lead to the very same result, and it's not a good result. And as we'll see, it's extremely important for us as Christians to understand the di distinction between these two ways that I'm, I'm talking about. The people that Jesus is calling out and confronting in this passage today are the highly respected leaders of the religion of Judaism, the Pharisees and the scribes. Luke does not tell us that explicitly here in this passage, but Matthew and Mark do in their passages that are parallel to ours today. And these religious leaders, they uh, claim to know God and to, to love God and to serve God. And most everyone else around them thinks that's exactly what they're doing, too. They are Bible-believing to the core, they would tell you. In fact, their lives line up with the Bible and with God's law better than yours or mine probably ever will. And yet, what we see in this passage and all across the New Testament, too, is that these, these very same religious leaders, they, they were wrong. They were wrong when it came to their relationship with God. And they were wrong when it came to their, their status and even, even their salvation before God. Without even knowing it, these very moral men, these highly religious leaders, they were not loving and serving God at all. They were actually rejecting God and, and being rejected by Him. And so we certainly want to understand what's going on here, to be sure. This passage is going to warn us in a very sobering way about the danger of of religion. It's going to warn us of the danger of living a very moral life apart from Jesus. Now, I do need to clarify. I should clarify what I mean when I say re religion, when I'm using this term. Some of you may be wondering what I'm talking about. I'm using the term religion in a very particular way, in a, in a negative way. I'm using religion as a synonym, really, for moralism or for, for legalism. Religion, as I'm using the term, basically says this. 
Religion says that a person can earn God's love and God's acceptance. A person can earn their way into being accepted by God and loved by God and favored by God. How? By being a good person and by doing good things. Religion says, I do these good things for you, God. I follow your rules. I live a moral life. And in return, God, you do these good things for me. You bless me. You give me nice things and a nice life. You let me into heaven. Why? Well, because look at all that I do for you, Lord, and for others too. Look at how faithful I've been. Look at what I've given up to follow you, Lord. So the religious person at some level, perhaps even a subconscious level, has uh, certain expectations of God, expectations of getting good things from God by doing uh, good things for God. Just last week, I had a conversation with a guy who I know about his new dog. This guy is not a Christian. He's actually an atheist. And he already had a dog, but this was a new dog, and it was a a rescue dog. It was a senior rescue dog, a very old dog, rescued off the streets of L.A., and that's a pretty awesome thing. And he was telling me about the lady who he got the dog from, who had rescued the dog. He told me that this woman had started a dog rescue a couple years back, and he said she had also been running a homeless shelter in the area for a, for a long, long time, too. And after learning all this, he told me, he said to the woman, wow, you, you started a dog rescue on top of running a homeless shelter? He said, what, are you trying to be extra sure that you'll, you'll make it into heaven so you started the dog rescue, too? But friends, that's what many people think that Christianity is because that's what most world religions in fact are, right? Religion says I get right with God based on what I do. I clean up my life. I do good things. And God sees me favorably as a result and treats me favorably as a result. That's religion. But that's the opposite of the gospel, right? Christianity is not a religion, not like that. I would also say about religion and morality, it can involve doing good things, not only so that God might see me a certain way, but so that I might see myself a certain way, right? Look, look at what a good person I am. Or so that I might be seen by others a certain way. Look at what a good person Jeff is. Isn't that great? Isn't he great? The Pharisees and the scribes were most definitely like that. We're told in Luke chapter 11, verse 43, that they liked the front row seats at the synagogue where they could be seen. We're told they also liked to be recognized and greeted in the marketplace. We're told in Matthew chapter 23, verse 6, they, they loved the place of honor at the banquets that they attended. And it says they loved their titles. They, they loved it when people called them rabbi. Religion, you see, is fundamentally self-centered and self-serving. It often involves doing good things, not to glorify God, but ultimately to glorify the self. And while it may look very polished and pious on the outside, this passage and others like it make it very clear that doing good things for the wrong reasons, for those sorts of reasons, is actually a dangerous rejection of God and His grace. What this means is that there are two very different ways a person can reject God. You can reject God 
not only by living a very immoral, irreligious life, you can also reject God by living a very moral, religious life. Do you understand this? You can reject God not only by being a very bad person, but also by being a very good person for the wrong reasons. Motivations actually matter more than we may think, according to the Bible. And so two ways of rejecting God, irreligion, doing whatever you want, and religion, doing good things so that God will accept you and bless you. Two ways of rejecting God, and one and only one way of accepting God and being accepted by Him, and that is the gospel. And Jesus is going to remind us as Christians that we need to be aware of all three of these different ways of responding to God, because the human heart has a tendency to kind of drift away from resting in the gospel and, and remaining in the gospel and relying on the gospel to one of these other two ways of really resting and relying on, our, on ourselves. And so let's dive into this passage, and as we do, we see in verse 14, first we see a man delivered. Verse 14, now he, was dri- he being Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon came out, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowds were amazed. So Jesus obviously is performing, has performed another miracle as we begin this passage. He liberates this man from a demon who had rendered this man speechless. And so this was not a man of few words, this was a man of of no words. But we're told that when Jesus was done with this man and done with this demon, this silent, speechless man began speaking. And I'm sure he had a lot to say. And we're told, not surprisingly, that the crowds were amazed. They were amazed. Now, although many in the crowd were amazed, the religious leaders in that crowd, they had a different agenda altogether on this day that we're we're about to see. By the time this miracle happens, we're pretty far along in Jesus' ministry, in the public ministry of Jesus. In fact, we're only months away from the cross, and and these religious leaders, they were beginning to launch a very calculated campaign against him. And so they wanted to offer up their own explanation for the things that Jesus had been doing and for what he had just done for this mute man, too, in this moment. They wanted people to hear their conclusion about Jesus, about where Jesus was tapping into all this power that he clearly had. And so what do the religious leaders decide about Jesus? What was their conclusion? Because a conclusion had been drawn by them. We see that in verses 15 and 16, a conclusion drawn. And get this, the most most educated, respected leaders of the Jewish religion reached a conclusion about Jesus that was exactly the opposite of the truth. Look at verse 15, it says, But some of them, referring to the religious leaders, said, He drives out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And so how about that? After a year and a half of observing the many miracles and teachings of Jesus, these religious leaders conclude that Jesus does not represent God, he represents Satan. He's not from heaven, he is from hell. He's from the darkness, not the light. That is their explanation for his power. His power is satanic, they say. It has to be. And this word, Beelzebul, 
has a deeply, it's a deeply derogatory term. It's a reference to the devil, obviously, that, that meant something along the lines of the Lord of Dung. This is where Jesus was getting his power, they say, from, from the Lord of Dung. Now, it should be said, these same religious leaders never denied any of the miracles of Jesus because they couldn't. There were too many of them, right? Everybody knew about them. Everybody was talking about them. They could not deny the, the miracles of Jesus because they were simply undeniable. Dead people came alive, right? Crippled people walked. The blind were made to see. The deaf were made to hear. And, and in this passage today, we see that, that the mute spoke. So how can this be? How can the brightest Bible-believing religious scholars of the day have God himself, God in the flesh, standing right there in front of them and miss it so badly? How do they resist the truth about Jesus and arrive at this outrageous conclusion? On the one hand, it is indeed shocking but on the other hand, if you think about it, you, you can kind of see how they get there. They don't really have anywhere else to go. If Jesus was not who he said he was, then he was absolutely diabolical. He had to be. He's either divine or he's demonic, right? No ordinary man has this sort of supernatural power. So in some sense, their theology kind of forces them toward their conclusion, toward this conclusion, and Jesus, I think, kind of forces them there, too, if we're paying attention. After all, Jesus went after these guys, these religious leaders, relentlessly. At various points during his ministry, Jesus calls them blind, calls them fools and hypocrites. He says, you're clean on the outside, but empty and dead on, on the inside. You're full of greed and evil and self-righteousness, he says. He says to them in Matthew chapter 23, verse 33, you're snakes. He says, how can you possibly escape being condemned to hell? And so you can kind of understand why these guys might not be the biggest fans of Jesus. But friends, the religious, the moral, the self-righteous, these are the only people Jesus ever comes after like this. And why? Because these religious leaders, they think they're good with God. They think they're right with God. They think they're blessed by God because of the things they do for God and do for other people, for God's people. And along comes Jesus. He says, you couldn't be more wrong. Jesus was not and is not the sort of Savior most people want or expect or think they need, especially religious people like these. And so they reach a conclusion that is the complete opposite of the truth. And they accuse Jesus not of being, of being sent not by God, but by Satan. And what does Jesus do? How, how does he respond to an accusation like that? Well, with, with mercy and grace, at least to begin with, he starts talking about a kingdom divided. A kingdom divided. Take a look at verse 17, verses 17 to 23. Knowing their thoughts, he told them, every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction, and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? 
For you say, I drive out demons by Beelzebul. And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons drive them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so, pretty amazingly, Jesus responds to their accusation, first with mercy and grace. They decide that Jesus is, is sent from hell. And what does he do? What does he say? He gives, he gives a sort of evangelistic appeal to begin with. He calls them to rethink their conclusion. He says, you're not being logical. You're not being consistent. A kingdom divided against itself doesn't work. It will self-destruct any nation in Civil war will cave in and collapse. You're suggesting that Satan is warring against himself. And if, but if Satan cancels Satan, is there any Satan, any Satan left? And then Jesus offers up an interesting metaphor, an, an illustration to kind of help correct their thinking. He paints a picture of what just happened with this mute man in verse 14. Look at verses 21 and 22. It says, when a, he, Jesus says, when a strong man fully armed, guards his estate, his possessions are secure. But when one stronger than he attacks and overpowers him, he takes from him all his weapons he trusted in and divides up his plunder. So Jesus is saying to the Pharisees and the scribes, surely you can see that Satan is being overpowered, right? How many times do I have to show you? Jesus has demonstrated his authority over the spiritual realm again and again, sometimes in very dramatic fashion. You may remember the guy in Luke chapter 8, the Gerasene demoniac. He was dominated by, what, by a legion of demons, it says. And a legion is a very, a very large number, se several thousand. This man was, he was naked. He was living in the tombs. He would... He would cry out and cut himself with stones, it said. It said nobody could get through to him anymore. This guy was beyond, was beyond help. And yet when this man gets into the presence of Jesus, he's down on his knees. It says he fell before Jesus, and they, they being the demons who were dominating this man, were begging Jesus to, to let them be. Next thing you know, we're told that the demons departed this man, and we're told that this man was sitting calmly at the feet of Jesus, clothed, covered, and get this, in his right mind. This man had been liberated, just like the man, this mute man in verse 14, and it says he was now calm and covered and clear, clear-minded, clear-thinking. And so here's my point. Jesus deals with a thousand demons there the same way he deals with one demon here. He doesn't work up a sweat. He doesn't roll up his sleeves. He doesn't call on a higher power. He doesn't need to because he is the higher power. He simply speaks. He says, come out, and, and it happens. The stronger one has come to overpower and to plunder the kingdom of darkness, Jesus declares in verse 22. He did it with the, this man in the passage today. And the truth is, he did it with each one of us, too, in a way. This is a, really a picture of, of salvation, in a way. Every day when souls are added to the kingdom of God, Satan is being, he's being overpowered. His weapons are being seized. His estate is being plundered by the one who is stronger.
And Jesus says to the Pharisees, let's be clear, when, when you see me do these things and deliver these people, you're not seeing a kingdom divided against itself, as you allege. You're seeing two kingdoms divided one against the, the other. And Jesus drives this point home, I think, in verse 23. He sends a wake-up call to the Pharisees and the scribes and to every person since. Look at verse 23. He says, anyone who is not with me is against me. And anyone who does not gather with me scatters. Many will tell you today that there's really nothing uh, black and white in this world anymore, right? No, no absolutes. They will tell you the world is gray, very gray, many different shades of gray, but nothing, nothing is black or white. And I suppose that's how it appears to many people, right? We live in a complicated world. So many different types of people and, and beliefs and worldviews. So many different ideas and lifestyles and religions. Who's to say anyways what's right and what's wrong? Who's to say what's really true? And after all, what is true for you may not be true for me, many will say. And so everyone's personal truth needs to be acknowledged and accepted and, and even celebrated. And it is applauded by many that we finally reach this pinnacle of understanding and, and acceptance as as a human race. And so it's not hard to understand why it might sound pretty jarring for some people these days when, when the Bible is opened and we come to a verse like this and a passage like this where you, where you hear Jesus speaking in, in very absolute terms. Jesus does not say there are many different shades of gray, many truths. He doesn't say there are many different ways to see the world and, and to understand your place in it. No, Jesus, he cuts through all the fog very rapidly. He reduces the human race to a very simple and very precise division into two categories of, of people. And he says it's, it's either or. It's one or the other, right? Jesus does not say there are many shades of gray to pick and choose from when it comes to the human condition, he says there are only two shades. And one is light, and the other is dark. Two groups, with him or against him. No third category, no other category, no middle ground, no neutral ground, no gray area at all, according to, to Jesus. And this is the template he lays over the entire human race. Jesus is saying everyone in the world lives and dies in one of these two categories. And there's no more important decision you can make in your life than which of these two categories you're in. Because according to Jesus, your eternal destiny is determined by what you decide. And so this is not gray at all. This is precise. This is definitive. This is determinative. And this also means, of course, that making no decision at all about Jesus is indeed a decision. You don't have to outright reject him or slander him or hate him to be against him. All you have to do is, is nothing. And so nobody in the whole world belongs to nobody. Jesus says you either belong to me or you belong to, to Satan. That's what this verse is teaching. 
And a lot of people don't like it. But that's what he says here and in other places too. And remember who he's talking to. He's talking to the Pharisees and the scribes, and he's saying, you may think you're for God and that God is for you, but you're actually against God because you're against me. And so it's a pretty fascinating scene. You have these highly respected religious leaders who believe they're very close to God and very committed to God, standing in the literal presence of God, being rebuked and rejected by him. And then Jesus concludes this conversation with a peculiar story. In verses 24 to 26, Jesus tells a story that kind of illustrates the danger of the sort of religion and morality that the Pharisees and the scribes were practicing. And so let's talk about a danger described or a danger disclosed by Jesus in verses 24 to 26. Verse 24, when an unclean spirit comes out of a person, it roams through waterless places looking for rest. And not finding rest, it then says, I'll go back to my house that I came from. Returning, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and settle down there. As a result, that person's last condition is worse than the first. And so, of course, Jesus is addressing the same religious leaders with this story. It's still the very same conversation. And what he's doing, I think, is giving us a little picture here of what what has happened with the Pharisees. He's showing us what happens when a person cleans up their life on the outside, but leaves the inside empty and, and unattended. And that is exactly what the Pharisees did, right? That's exactly what they were. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 27, Jesus says to the Pharisees and scribes, he says, you're like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of the bones of of the dead and of every kind of impurity. In the same way, Jesus says, on the outside, you, you seem righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. These men's lives lined up with the Bible very well on the outside. Everything appeared to be in order, right? But behind the mask, they were wearing a mask of religion and morality while the inside of them were were rotting and corrupt. And so this story is telling us how far morality and religion can, can take a person. These religious leaders were under the delusion that somehow... All of their housekeeping, all their morality had had put them on a secure footing with with God. And we're being told in this passage, I believe, by Jesus that that is a damning delusion. Morality and religion create the deception that all is well with God when it's not. Morality and religion are a seduction. They're a demonic seduction. Seduction, Jesus seems to be saying by telling this, this story. I think you could even say from all this that morality may be more dangerous than, than immorality. In the end, being moral is more deadly and dangerous 
than being immoral. Because think about this. As long as a person knows they're living an immoral life, they usually know they need help at some level, right? He knows he's gone wrong. He knows he's done wrong. So it's not hard for such a person to come to realize their their need for help and their, their need for grace. In fact, throughout the New Testament, it is the immoral, irreligious people who connect most readily with Jesus and with his message of grace. While the moral, the more moral, more religious people, as we've seen today, reject him and, and his message. And it does make some sense, if you think about it, because when a person believes they are already moral and already righteous, what in the world do they need a savior for? When a person comes to believe in their own righteousness, they are moving toward becoming irredeemable. They believe all is well when it is not. That's what Jesus is driving home, I think, in this passage in part. And that is the grave danger of religion. It's a way of rejecting God and his grace without even knowing it, without even realizing it. And it will always make the last state worse than the first. It certainly did with the Pharisees and the scribes as they, as they reached this final conclusion of theirs about, about Jesus. Now, by this point, you may be saying, that's all very interesting, Jeff, but what does this have to do with me? Can we get a bit more practical here? And the answer is yes. This story is indeed directed at the Pharisees, but it does have something to say to us too, I think. Because the truth is, the human heart struggles to rest in the gospel, to remain in the gospel, even for those of us who who know and, and love Jesus. We very easily drift as Christians away from the gospel into a works-based sort of approach to God. One of Martin Luther's fundamental insights that he made was that religion, as we've been discussing it, is a default mode of the human heart. And he would say that this default mode persists so stubbornly in the human heart that Christians who believe the gospel at one level nevertheless continue to revert to to religion at at deep and even subconscious levels. Richard Lovelace put it like this. He said, only a fraction of the present body of professing Christians are solidly appropriating the justifying work of Christ in their lives. Many have a theoretical commitment to this doctrine, referring to the doctrine of justification by, by faith alone, but their day-to-day exist, in their day-to-day existence, they rely on their sanctification, on their works for their justification before God. He says, as a result, many people draw their assurance of acceptance with God from things like their sincerity, from their recent religious performance, and from the relative infrequency of their conscious, willful disobedience to God. In other words, we drift, right? 
We drift into thinking that God's love for us is based on the things that we do rather than the things that Jesus has already done. Lovelace goes on to talk about some of the effects of this, this drift. He says, Christians who are no longer sure that God loves them and accepts them in Jesus, apart from their present spiritual achievements, are subconsciously radically insecure persons. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness, and a defensive criticism of others. They come naturally to look down upon other people and groups who are not like them in order to bolster their own security and discharge their suppressed anger. So friends, we need to be on guard against this subtle and slippery movement within our hearts away from the gospel and toward religion. But how? How do we do that? How do we even know if this is happening? Well, I think at a minimum we need to understand kind of what to be looking out for. We need to learn and understand how we can diagnose our own hearts in this area. And so I'd like to finish up today by offering up several diagnostic statements, diagnostic comparisons between religion and the gospel. And I hope these will help show us where our hearts may be this morning and help us to reset our hearts and recenter our hearts where that may be, may be needed. And so see how these statements land with you this morning. And I'll say I adapted these from a Timothy Keller book called Center Church. Let me read through these. Religion says, I obey God so that I will be accepted. But the gospel says, I'm accepted by God, therefore I obey. Religion says, I obey God in order to get good things from God. But the gospel says, I obey God to get God, to delight and resemble him. In religion, motivation for serving God is based on fear and insecurity. But in the gospel, motivation for serving God is based on grateful joy. In religion, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I'm angry at God, myself, or others. In the gospel, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I struggle, but I know that while God may allow that this for my training, he will exercise his fatherly, fatherly love within my trial. In religion, when I'm criticized by others, I'm crushed because it is essential for me to be seen as a good person. In the gospel, when I am criticized, I struggle but it is not essential for me to think of myself as a good person because I know that I'm not. My identity is not built on my performance, but on God's love for me based on Christ's performance. In religion, my prayer life consists largely of petition and only heats up when I am in need. My main purpose in prayer is to control circumstances. In the gospel, my prayer life consists of generous stretches of praise and adoration. My main purpose is fellowship with him. In religion, my view of myself fluctuates day to day. If and when I'm living up to my standards, I feel confident, but
but prone to pride. If and when I'm not living up to my standards, I feel like a failure. But in the gospel, I am sinful and broken, yet simultaneously accepted and loved, regardless of how well I do. This leads to a deep humility and a deep confidence at the very same time. Last one, in religion, my identity and self-worth are based mainly on what I do and achieve. So I look down on those I perceive as lazy or immoral or inferior. I often disdain and feel superior to other people. It is important for me to be right. But in the gospel, only by sheer grace am I what I am. So I can't look down on those who believe or practice something different from me. I have no inner need to be right or to win arguments. And so friends, I hope you'll consider these statements carefully this morning and throughout the day and throughout this week because we do drift in the direction of religion. And it does have very destructive ripple effects in our lives when we do, just as you heard. And so let's be reminded this morning how the very premise of religion is not not only antithetical to the gospel, it is, a, it is a demonic lie. It is a tool of the devil. And the truth, the truth that we must return to again and again to, to counteract that lie is simply this. Christian, nothing, nothing you could ever do for God can make you any more loved by God than Jesus in the gospel has already made you. Nothing you can do for God could possibly make you any more loved by God than Jesus in the gospel has already made you. Nothing. And so let's rest in that. Let's rely on that this morning and, and in, in this new year. And let's be aware and resist this default drift in this dangerous direction in our hearts. Let's pray together.